Hi, it's May 21st, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Today we're going to do some myth busting. Myths, you say? That's right. Myths like fever is common in lupus, or nothing can treat or help vitiligo, or don't use fluoroquinolones because of the tendinopathy, or Immune-related adverse events are more common in our patients with rheumatic and autoimmune disease. Let's cover those in this episode of Mythbusting. We're going to begin with a report from Dinesh Khanna, where he reviews the literature on connective tissue disease-related pulmonary arterial hypertension. It happens. It happens a modest amount in our patients. He did analysis of over 11 clinical trials using 19 registries, had thousands of patients, almost 6,000 patients that he looked at overall, and came away with the following tidbits. One, that use of newer therapies, investigational therapies, has significantly reduced the morbidity and mortality associated with PAH in our patients by as much as one-third. Impressive. You would think that this is a progressive, if not deadly, complication. Overall, our patients had um, lower survival compared to other PAH patients, 62% uh, versus 72%. So we're not doing all that good, and maybe there's a way to go. Um, And that's survival at three years. But the interesting thing about that 62% survival number at three years, um, it actually improved after 2010, suggesting Newer therapies, newer advances is making an impact. Again, you look at the data after 2010, it's 73 versus 65%. So, in fact, we have gotten better than other patients with uh, non-CTD-related pulmonary hypertension. I think that's uh, an advance that we need in those disorders, especially many of those being scleroderma-like patients. You know, someone said the other day that lupus patients get fever. And I said, well, of course they do. But I started looking up the references to this. And they all say pretty emphatically that fever is common in lupus. And I'm thinking, I've taken care of, I think, thousands of lupus patients. And I'm telling you, fever is not that common in lupus. So the textbooks and the review articles say 36 to 86% of patients with lupus have fever. But in my experience, not so much. We know if you look at FUO series, lupus is a cause of fever of unknown origin in up to 5%. The number one cause, rheumatic cause of FUO, that's right, Stills disease. But lupus is a close second behind. It was the number one cause in the very first Petersdorf uh, review of FUO from the 60s. Uh, But after that, it's become Stills disease. Um, How often does fever occur? It's not that common. In fact, it's uncommon and a minority. It's more likely to be seen in certain situations. First and foremost, infection. You see fever in a lupus patient, it's infection until proven otherwise. But it does happen in certain manifestations, including those who have vasculitis, not that common in lupus, those who have lung involvement, pneumonitis, sericitis, and especially alveolar hemorrhage. They're often and almost always febrile at presentation. And distinguishing pneumonitis from pneumonia from alveolar hemorrhage is not all that easy. Some patients with cerebritis will have a febrile presentation, but I want to underscore that infection is the most worrisome of complications of lupus with fever. 
another tidbit from teaching rounds arthritis mutilans you know gnarled up fingers broken windmills you know really ugly arthritis an absolute failure for any rheumatologist who had to witness that um it only happens in but a few diseases so it's not all rheumatoid of course rheumatoid usually is the one that gets blamed but it's not uncommon in patients with psoriatic arthritis it's one of those subgroups of psoriatic arthritis severe tophaceous gout is high on the list unfortunately kids with polyarticular jia and that one disorder that we are all waiting to see but we'll never see in our lifetime that's right multicentric reticulohistiocytosis mrh it's a test question it's a bad test question because you're never going to see it it doesn't really matter don't even study for it just get it wrong and move on to things that are more important can't believe i said that so a nice uh, article came out about checkpoint inhibitor safety uh, in patients with autoimmune disease this is a study from a, a dutch database of of individuals who have melanoma and from that database, I think they had almost uh, uh, over 4,000 patients in the database and 400 patients or so who had um, autoimmune disease. Let me find that reference here and, and start pointing at some of the numbers. Yeah, 4,300 patients in the Dutch database, uh, their, their registry, and over 400. Um, half of those patients uh, with autoimmune disease were classified as rheumatologic. And of all these 400 patients with autoimmune disease in the database, half were treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. At issue here is when you give an immune checkpoint inhibitor, which can cause, as you know, an immune-related adverse event. You know, Lenny and Cassie Calabrese have been talking about these. We've been talking about them a lot on our coverage of ACR and ULAR. The question is, are our patients at higher risk? And from this analysis, it shows that the frequency of grade 3 or higher IRAEs were the same if you use CTLA, CTLA anti CTLA4, uh, that's 30 and 30 with or without autoimmune disease. Anti PD1, uh, 17 and 13 with or without autoimmune disease. And a combination, it's actually higher, 44 and 48. So what does this say? Number one, the frequency of IRAEs in patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors is pretty high in this registry. I think it seems a little bit high to me. But it means that we are certainly going to see these patients. Will we see more of these patients from our patients who have maybe cancer and autoimmune disease? And this data suggests not. However, there was a subset in this cohort analysis that was at higher risk, and that was the patients who had um, uh, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, especially those who received the anti-PD-1 uh, drug had a higher incidence of severe colitis, often leading to drug discontinuation. That was seen in 19% of those with IBD versus 3% of those without IBD. But note, if you will, there are only about 50 patients in this group, so the numbers here are low. This data suggests that maybe our patients don't have a higher risk of IRAEs. I was of the belief that they probably do, but I think we need to see more data on this going forward. Uh, New England Journal published a nice report about rituximab being maybe the preferred agent in patients with pemphigus vulgaris. This is a drug study comparing rituximab to mycophenolate, a one-year trial of 135 patients. Basically, remission was more likely with rituximab, 40%, versus those on mycophenolate, only 
a New England Journal article that will impact you. I've actually had a few patients with pemphigus and the dermatologist referred them to me for more advanced therapies and that has been actually our go-to drug more recently. A very interesting report comes out about JAK inhibitor use in vitiligo. There are two trials out there called the TRUE, T-R-U-E-V trials, uh, looking at rux, ruxolotinib, um, a topical JAK uh, inhibitor, uh, in adolescents and adults with vitiligo. Uh, and it was a, compared to placebo. And basically, they showed their primary endpoints being something called the facial vitiligo area scoring index, a FVAS 75. It's like a POSI 75, um, was more likely to be achieved in patients on the topical JAK inhibitor than those on the, um, the placebo. So this is sort of encouraging news. And, and again, the expanding indications for JAK inhibition is growing. Of course, these are studies suggesting this. We need to see more trials and FDA approval before we start using this. Uh, a nice report came from the, I think, JAMA Pediatrics, or Pediatrics actually, this week, um, looking at uh, fluoroquinolone use and its association with uh, tendinopathy, tendinitis, and or um, ruptured tendons in kids. Um, and the authors of this paper were saying, yeah, it occurs, but it's really quite uncommon in kids. So the 90-day risk, um, and they looked at 4.4 um, million adolescents receiving 7.6 million doses of fluoroquinolones, the 90-day risk of a tendon rupture was basically 4.7 per 10,000, not very much, and tendonitis was basically 9 per 1,000. So these are, you know, 1 in 2,000 um, risk for ruptures and, and maybe a 1 in a 100 risk of tendonitis. That's kind of high. The authors, however, were trying to say that kids, these are such rare events in kids, it seems uh, uh, imprudent to have excluded these kids from getting effective therapy, fluoroquinolones, for um, diseases that they would normally use that for. As you know, the current guidelines are that if you're thinking antibiotic, the fluoroquinolone should be your last choice when other effective antibiotic choices exist. Now, the other thing that you need to know here, of course, is that the risk of fluoroquinolone-associated tendinopathy and tendon ruptures goes up significantly with age. So the numbers in here in kids are low. It would be higher in an adult population. Other studies of adult populations show risk of anywhere from 3 to 20-fold higher with fluoroquinolones and higher as you get older. So the point here is that, that maybe kids shouldn't um, be restricted from using fluoroquinolones. I still think the rule still applies. If you have an acceptable alternative, use it instead of the fluoroquinolone. A very interesting uh, article comes up um, this week in the Journal of Rheumatology looking at um, a study of uh, almost 1,100, 1,200 vasculitis patients and using 12,000, 11,000 controls. They looked for genes associated specifically with Kawasaki's. And, and actually, they came up with a genetic variant called RS3743841. Write that down again, RS3743841, or play those numbers in lotto this week. Um, it's located at the intron of the uh, NAGPA gene, um, and how it's going to be related to Kawasaki's is not known, but highly significant associations with Kawasaki's and another um, pediatric vasculopathy, IgA vasculitis, also significantly higher. So this 
is a nice um, new revelation. Maybe it will lead to um, better insights as to etiology and or better therapies. I saw a tweet this week where people were um, talking about um, how to convince uh, patients and family members on whether or not they should take the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and here's one of my reasons that I use. Um, this is actually, I think, a, an effective one. So the during the COVID era, you've all known that we're not seeing any episodes of influenza. The numbers are dramatically, dramatically lower. So comparing um, this past COVID year to the year before, flu test positives dropped from over 19% to less than 0.33% according to the state of Texas health records. So it's an over a 98% drop in the frequency of influenza. And as you know, influenza kills tens of thousands, um, and, but it's not this year. Uh, it's the COVID that's killing tens of thousands. And the question is, you know, should you get the vaccine? Well, this data says just wearing a mask and social distancing has led to these dramatic drops in the risk of COVID. Oh, by the way, the COVID vaccine is about 100 times more effective than masking and social distancing. So to not take this magic bullet is gigantically stupid. Now, another tact you can take is that, you know, patients are worried the rush to approval. The FDA doesn't approve anything without great evidence. Um, there is no real rush to approval. There was a tremendous financial and scientific effort behind this rapid development of the vaccine. But safety is measured in patient years. I think Humira went on the market with 2,400 patient years of experience. These three vaccines that are currently out there in play in the U.S. and Canada are on the market with about 100,000 patient years. So that's another um, thing that you can try to employ. Speaking of COVID, um, uh, Annals of Rheumatic Disease just published the results of the recent updated data from the GRA, the Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry of Rheumatic Patients with COVID-19 Infections, listing the causes of death or the associations that may have a higher risk of death amongst the 3,729 patients. Congratulations to you rheumatologists who've entered all that data and led to this great database. From that 3,700 patients, 10% died, um, which is not good. It's a skewed population, of course. Um, it's not going to be, I don't think that's the real risk of our patients and um, of dying, but this is a skewed population to figure out, you know, disease and drug associations. Um, high on the list for risk factors for death, a three to six-fold increased risk with age. Um, six-fold or higher with over 75, three-fold for those over 65. Hypertension with cardiovascular disease, a two-fold increased risk. Lung disease, also an increased risk. Moderate to high disease activity is an important risk factor. Rituximab has a four-fold increased risk. Sulpazalazine, a three-fold increased risk. Not being on DMARDs, a two-fold increased risk. I think that not being, being on DMARDs makes some sense. I think not being on sulpazalazine may be the same as not being on a DMARD. I'm just guessing here. So surprising to me was that the immunos there are certain immunosuppressants that were associated with higher death rates. That included azathioprine, cyclophosphamide, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, and tacrolimus. Most of the other ones that you use, including methotrexate, no Tesla, and whatnot. Uh, and, and the other thing is that JAK inhibitors and other biologics were not at increased risk. This is important to note. Speaking of biologics, an important report. Um, look, try to dissect 
the uh, influence of tocilizumab, IL-6 inhibition on the risk of GI perforations. This is a report from the Journal of Rheumatology, um, Rheumatology, not the Journal of Rheumatology. Um, and it basically looked at a, a, a comparative cohort study of patients who are on tocilizumab and compared them to other patients, RA patients, taking either rituximab or abatacept. And they did see, as you might expect, a threefold higher risk of diverticulitis and GI perforations in patients who are taking tocilizumab. I think what they tried to um, tease out here was, which is it driving? Is it driving the risk of, of, of diverticulitis? And it does, a threefold higher risk, almost a fourfold higher risk of tocilizumab um, causing diverticulitis without um, perforation. And that um, diverticulitis with perforation, a threefold higher risk. And then overall, just perforations, a threefold higher risk. The point being that maybe tocilizumab's risk for causing uh, lower GI perforations especially is in causing uh, tos uh, diverticulitis. And then the subsequent problem would then be perforations, especially in patients who are also on another risk factor, and that would be steroids. So look, again, you can give your drug, your IL-6 inhibitor to patients on di with diverticulosis. That's not a problem. Diverticulitis, uh-oh, maybe you shouldn't. In fact, your patients who are doing great on IL-6 inhibition with um, a history of diverticulitis, um, I might want to switch, or especially if they're having any GI symptoms at all. Uh, so that's it for this week on the podcast. Be sure to go to uh, the website to find these citations and more. Uh, you can go and find uh, a great presentation of uh, spondyloarthritis, the, the spondyloarthritis session from Room Now Live. We featured that on Room Now Live this past week. Uh, short talks and discussions from Dr. Nigel Haroon, Artie Kavanaugh, and Dr. Robert Wong. A really good session that's available both as a, um, a video and also as individual lectures and also as a, a whole podcast of that session for you to listen to. I also want to encourage you, today is the beginning of the Cleveland Clinic's Biologic Therapy Summit. This is the ninth time Lenny Calabrese has run that program. It started today. Today's program is um, devoted to vasculitis with great presentations by uh, Carol Langford and Gabe Hatimi and, uh, and Peter Merkel. Um, the interesting thing about this Biologic Summit, it's free. You can go there. You can register. You can um, consume this information live as it happens. Hurry, get there now. Or tomorrow, Saturday, you can see um, great presentations on the effect of COVID um, in our patients and our diseases. And then there's a, another session on Sunday. It's all available. It's all free. You can go to the Cleveland Clinic website. We'll have that on our website for you to link to. But it's clevelandclinicmeded.com slash live slash courses slash biologic slash go to our website click on it there register they got a lot of people i mean usually these cleveland clinic events are available but it's usually you know a, a good registration fee it's free because it's covid you should take advantage of that we'll talk to you next week be safe take care